don't let rejections bother you. That was said by the Hollywood legend who went on to create and narrate one of the most popular television series of the late 50s and beyond. The series lasted five seasons, and today it can be found on YouTube. The Hollywood legend in question also proclaimed to John Frederick, all of a sudden there was gold in my closet. It was the late... Rod Serling, who will be profiled in this podcast along with Julie Harris and Bob Hope. Hi everyone, I'm Neil Scott. Welcome to Starcatcher, the podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age as told by the man who was there when they said it. John Charles Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit. And he's the author of the top-selling book by the same name. Star Catcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy, which is available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. In our last podcast, you talked about your encounters with Glenn Ford, James Drury, and a few more recollections from your time spent with the Duke, the legendary John Wayne. And by the way, if you're a new listener to this podcast, you may want to go back and listen to the previous ones at some point. There are some great personal stories as John pulls back the curtain on those who were once the Hollywood elite. And in this edition of Star Catcher, the podcast, we're going to talk about John's memories of working with Rod Serling, Julie Harris, and a true American hero, Bob Hope. John will also share some insights into his early days in Hollywood. You have just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Now, many of us have grown up hearing those immortal words from the great Rod Serling. Now, John, you worked with Rod Serling. Do tell. What was he like? Well, who wasn't a fan of Rod Serling in the day, you know? I mean, he was an omnipresent black and white spokesman smoking a cigarette invariably and talking about the introduction to the Twilight Zone. And it was all very, very spooky and very good. And it had to be good because he wrote them all. And he was one of the best writers of his genre and the best writers, period, in, in Hollywood and, and in television, ever. We were doing a, uh, a follow-up to a film. I mentioned that Jim Drury had done a film for me called Flight from Yesterday. I had a friend who was also my partner and an editor named Rick Miner. Now, Rick is now in Seattle, a multi-million dollar uh, real estate selling waterfront homes and living uh, in a sleepless Seattle houseboat. That's what I call a Hollywood success story. He left Hollywood and made millions. Usually it's supposed to go the other way. But anyway, Rick was uh, an editor and a very, very good one. He, he had a real ear for music and he, his timing and so forth was great. And this was a, a movie that had a lot of stills of old airplanes and old aviators and things like that. It was a very successful movie, which was going to be called Wings of Eagles, Wings of Gold. This friend of mine said, I think I can get Rod Serling to narrate. Oh. And he mentioned the amount of money, which was, was not really very much. Uh, I won't go into the amount. It would embarrass us both. But we had Rod Serling, and I just went nuts. I mean, I, I, I watched every Twilight Zone and, and was, of course, amazingly taken with his style of ability. We did. We got to go to – I finished the script. 
uh, took it out. He took a look at it before I came over and, and we had a sound guy and Rick, the director, and I went out. He had a home in Brentwood, very Hollywood-like home, but pretty classy, very uh, English-looking, but it had a swimming pool and a lot of amenities that English cottages in England don't have. He came down from upstairs, the bedroom, and we discussed what, what was going to happen. It turned out that he was on the flight path to LAX, so we had some interruptions there. He also had quite a cigarette habit, so we had some coughing there. But that voice, if you ever heard the voice, you'd never forget it. It took several hours to do, but it didn't matter to me that there were all these pauses and so forth and so forth while he got, you know, he kind of cleared his throat and that kind of thing, and, and the planes would fly over. We could put it together. It might look like spaghetti, but we could put it together because it was all there and that voice was there. When you meet a celebrity, you're always, almost always, struck by their they're a lot shorter than you thought. They're they're not as prepossessing. They're not as big as you might have thought. Actually, he was he wasn't even five foot five. I don't think very small, wiry little guy, and very slender, kind of dressed California summer, you know. Anyway, his ability to grasp the material, I, I just I was just so impressed. And, and we had expanded the original film to bring in other famous aviators from World War II. It was a lot longer, about a half an hour script. We had some World War II music and so forth that we added later. Was he in the military, John? Actually, uh, that was one of the reasons he liked the script, because it dealt with World War II, and he he had been a paratrooper. Actually had jumped into, uh, I think it was an attempt to, to free a prison camp in the Philippines campaign. And I, he was actually injured, probably, I don't know if you get Purple Heart for you know, breaking a leg or whatever in, uh, on, a, on a parachute jump, but that was the last action he ever saw, and that was plenty. He was being shot at while he was coming down, so that'll age you. But he was interested in World War II and all the figures, that, the historical figures that he'd read about and heard about and they knew about that were operating in the Pacific. But having gotten finished, said, this is a really nice script, which, of course, I wasn't getting any money from anybody, at this point, and very little money to make this movie. But that kind of, kind of like John Wayne gave me not, uh, not too many years after this, that was a very good substitute, having a professional say nice things about what I was trying to do. At any rate, he wrote a nice little blurb on the script. This is a fine piece of work, nice going, and so forth and so forth. We left, cut it up, and sure enough, it was gold when we played it. Later on, of course, he he's having... A little Hollywood trouble in that what had happened in Hollywood, the agents and, and the, the networks began to control things and, and weren't able to, didn't want to be able to give writers the freedom they'd had in the golden ages of television when Serling would write 44 scripts a year, which now I guess it's, they do about 26 a year, even on series that are going to run all year. The thing about it was he, there were so many network executives now that would inject their now rod don't you think you ought to do this and don't you i mean you didn't like being called rod anyway do this and we think you should do that and we should you know and you get about six people telling you what to do and when you know how to do it better than all of them put together and a couple fair writers to boot it must get annoying and he was just winding up a series called night gallery which i liked very much i was able to to visit the set one day 
night gallery was kind of a dark, it was in color, one of the first really scary kind of things in color. <laughs> Ozzy and Harriet were doing a night gallery, and I thought, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, the, the Nelson's going to do a, yeah, a night gallery? I guess it happened. But he was not happy with all that interference, and he later went back, not too much later. The show was a hit, not a hit of the Twilight Zone, but he went back to writing, and I think he went back to teaching and so forth. And unfortunately, um, died at a very young age. He did an operation, a heart operation. His heart had been weakened by cigarettes and all that. So he checked out at 50. Even I, at that age in my 30s, thought, that's pretty young. You know, when I was a kid, that would be like, oh, well, he lived a nice life. He's 50. But And all the critics and all the people who were trying to tell him how to write. And he told me some very good things. He said, don't let rejection bother you. He had 50 rejections to television before he sold one. It was called Patterns, and it was about a goings-on and a big business and all of the uh, feuds and things going on, kind of a, a madman, you know. So then after that, interestingly enough, and his quote to me was, there was gold in my closet all of a sudden. Scripts that weren't saleable, boom. All of a sudden, you couldn't sell them fast enough. And that was my last memory of Rod Serling. I never saw him again. John, you said that Rod Serling did not like to be called Rod. What did he like to be called? I don't know. I'd heard, I didn't hear that from him. I heard it from other people. And so I, I was Mr. Serling to me. And I never thought about that. My dad would have, you know, would have wanted me to call him anyway. So. Uh, it was Mr. Serling to me and nothing else. So I was not going to call him Rod. A lot of the people who are in, in this book, Starcatcher, I didn't call him. Uh, I didn't call him. Oh, there were a few, like Anthony Hopkins. I did call him Tony. But that was because we shared a particular group. So we were kind of meeting there, and, and first names were the way it was run. Another Hollywood legend that you worked closely with was five-time Tony Award-winning actress, Julie Harris, who also won a Grammy and three Emmy Awards during her illustrious career. What are your recollections of Julie Harris? And if you would, John, would you share some of the history between Julie Harris and James Dean? I remember in high school, I saw a movie called East of Eden. And James Dean, it was his first picture. Julie Harris, she'd been in a couple movies, I think. She was in a movie of her stage play, Member of the Wedding, and also I Am a Camera, which was also a play. She basically preferred the stage anyway. This is very Hollywood now. I had a uh, shrink. She wasn't a psychiatrist, but she was a counselor. I, uh, she was a therapist. Barbara P. was a, a member of the uh, activist group, uh, AA group called the Pacific Group, and uh, her husband was a United retired United pilot. When I went to see her, the person that came out in front of me was Dominic Dunn. And after I left, as I was leaving, Mariel Hemingway came by. So it's very Hollywood. Anyway, she was the person that knew Julie Harris. And I wanted Julie Harris for a, uh, a movie. We, uh, we were doing a film called uh, Family Violence in America. She did a lot of voiceovers. Uh, Ken Burns used her over and over in the Civil War and, and many, many other things. She had a wonderful, wonderful voice. 
She was known to uh, do things friendly to uh, people who were in addiction and and, uh, trying to get by, things like that. So I was to talk to her about this. And the occasion would have been then to go to a play that she was doing in L.A. at the Henry Fonda called Driving Miss Daisy. I'd had some contact with Joyce before this. She had uh, actually, come to think about it, she had done a film for me. We got in touch through through Barbara P. We got in touch with Julie Harris, and she agreed to do a film for us. Obviously, we're making films now on addiction. And uh, my son, who was running my company, the marketing director, Yvonne Parsons, came to me with the idea that we do a small book called The Cat That Drank and Used Too Much, written by a doctor named LeClaire Biffle. And we got the rights to it, or they got the rights to it. And I said, that is a dumb idea. You don't make movies with children or animals because you'll go over budget. And we are, we're, we're a poor company. We don't have that kind of money. And it won't work. And, and forget it. Then I went home and had a good night's sleep and woke up the next day. And I said, geez, that was a good idea. And I went back and, and okayed the project. And away we went. I co-wrote the script with the director, Tim Armstrong. And he obtained the necessary cats. We had two cats. And so it was a live action movie with cats. And we had some special effects. It turned out to be, of all things, our Gone with the Wind, although it was 15 minutes long. And Gone with the Wind, of course, lasted forever. But it later won, of all things, the British Medical Association's Film of the Year Award. And it was honored uh, many, many places and got many, many, many awards. And one of the reasons was that marvelous voice of Julie Harris. It was so successful that we had a Spanish version made up with Carmen Zapata, who was a major uh, Hispanic star. And uh, that was successful also. Julie and I then retained a, a friendship. And uh, I had heard that she was coming to town to do a play. And, of course, I didn't want to call. I, I don't like to intrude on people I've, I've worked with and so forth and ask anything special of them. So, I, again, I checked it out with Barbara. And she gave me her phone number uh, at a hotel in Santa Monica. So I called and Julie answered herself. And uh, sometimes stars don't, you know. At any rate, I said, you don't remember me, but I'm a friend of Barbara P. And she said, John, you're a friend of mine. I mean, ooh, my words. So she said, I'm doing Driving Miss Daisy at the Henry Fonda, which was on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, I think. Uh, She arranged for us to have tickets and to come backstage after the performance. And boy, was she good. I mean, I can't tell you how good she was. She, uh, with all due respect to Jessica Tandy, I remember the last line is not even a line. She's in an old person's home now, and her chauffeur, the black character, played by Brock Peters, by the way, in, in this particular stage version, he's hand-feeding her a piece of cake. And she goes, hmm. Well, if you and I go, hmm, I can't hear it or you can't hear it. She did that, mm, and you could hear it across the street, much less to the back of the theater, which is where we were. Anyway, we went backstage. She was just as gracious, and every time I met her, she was this way. And I had brought her a, a very nice crystal cat that I, we had uh, purchased, and she said, 
oh, I'm going to take that to my home in Cape Cod. Uh, it'll be a, a kind of a, a totem in the window, ready to check out the visitors. She was very, very pleased. Cost quite a bit of money, too, actually. So crystal is pretty expensive. But she was worth every nickel. So we went ahead then, and there was another movie to be made. And this time, we got to be present for a lot of the script writing and a lot of that. And I was able to ask her quite a few things about some of the films she'd done. And she had done other films. It was not her, she ended up in television too, but uh, her mate here was the theater. And she was just a, a creature of the theater. And she did the theater all her life. And movies were kind of an afterthought. She wasn't exactly a sexy leading woman kind of, you know, and she wasn't a Sandra D type, and she wasn't a she wasn't a Sophia Loren, but in uh, East of Eden, she played a wonderful character. And so we got to talk about. She told me a lot about James Dean, what he was like, and they were friends. And she had to help him sometimes because he was very, very sensitive. And he got into a kind of a back and forth with the man who played his father, Raymond Massey. And in the film, the two People hate, hated each other, although Dean was always trying to reach out to his father and James Fern. Anyway, it happened that they began to hate each other. <laughs> so it was great for the, the movie, but not so good for everyone else, having to be around that kind of thing. Massey was what you'd call a classic trained professional. And Dean was instinctive and a whole, in a Marlon Brando kind of spontaneous actor studio kind of way. When they first met, although they met back in, in New York, when they met in Hollywood at Warner Brothers, he says, well, hop into my car. I want to give you a ride. So she did. And he took her for a ride to Mulholland Drive. You go up Coldwater all the way to the top of the, you know, the Hollywood Hills. And it's windy and it's dangerous. And he drove like a maniac. We all know what happened to that later. It didn't come to a good end. She was a fine actress. No question about that. And she pretended that nothing was the problem and, you know, it was all very fine and so forth and so forth. And so she passed the test and they became close friends during the filming of East of Eden. She comforted him. She held his hand, as it were. She helped him with dialogue. She helped him with a lot, a lot of things and, and remained a friend of his all of his life, which wasn't actually much longer. I think it was two years later and he was killed in that car accident. So I got some James Dean stories, enough that there are basically more of them are in the book, Starcatcher. She tried and tried and tried to be his friend, and, and she was. She tried to help him throughout his life. One thing I struck me about her, that you know, there's always someone, something will tell you that you, you know more about them because they said that. She was telling me once that her father was an executive in the automobile field. He would be committed for alcoholism periodically. He was going uh, to another one of those sanitariums that they had in those days. It would have been, I guess, in the 30s or very early 40s. She packed the suitcase. Her mother said to her, you did that rather well. And Julie said, that was the only nice thing I remember my mother ever saying to me. And that kind of just drove an ice pick into your heart. You just could not imagine that. And explained, I think, her love for the theater, which, you know, the applause on stage, the adoration, the, the, the applause and so forth is right there. You can see it, hear it, feel it. 
and it's very personal, and she must have welcomed it. John, didn't you do an audio tape series with Julie Harris about addiction recovery? We did a series of audio tapes, recovery audio tapes, a day at a time. They were really fabulous. I mean, I thought, anyway, I, I kind of, I wrote in introductions for them. Um, a very, very well-known writer, Jack Weiner, and his wife wrote these things. At any rate, we had Julie. Uh, she was the first person to agree to do this, uh, the set of two books. And there was Lou Gossett, Dick Van Dyke, and Ali McGraw. And they were cassette tapes. And I thought they were very well done. Julie narrated her part back in Boston. And the other ones we got here, the problem was we were set up in my company to sell videos and film and not individual items like cassette tapes. Even though we got the marketed, fairly well-known book publisher uh, who also did audio tapes, it was one of those great ideas and it was a financial setback. But she was, again, nice enough to do that. She also made a personal appearance for us. When we did some of those films, the cat, the one family violence thing, she met with therapists and individuals who were in, in the problem of domestic violence. She always did those things and she never wanted to charge. I mean, her agent kept saying, you know, you have to pay us $10,000. We gave her gifts, but we, she insisted that she not be charged. One of America's true Hollywood icons was Bob Hope, whose endless credits traversed nearly 90 years in radio, TV, stage, and screen. He was truly the entertainer of the century. His forever theme song was Thanks for the Memories. John, you have a number of stories about Bob Hope in your book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy. Would you share a couple of those stories with us now? As far as Bob Hope goes, it turned out in the Navy uh, combat camera unit, we were doing things with some Hollywood stars and so forth. The commanding officer of that unit was Harry Flynn. I talked about Harry in some other settings. One of Harry's uh, clients was Bob Hope. He also had Michael Landon and quite a few other really important personalities and the monkeys. But uh, that would be an X-rated story. I was in the Hollywood office. I had been sent there from uh, my, my NATO assignment, my uh, second fleet assignment in, uh, on the Atlantic fleet side, and sent to Hollywood. I got to go to pick up Bob Hope and take him to the airport once or twice. He was, you know, he was friendly, but he wasn't funny. He didn't want to be funny. He wanted to talk about the Vietnam War. Quite a personality. And later... We did the first outtakes movie and TV show, I said, and it was one of the best because we got tapes from people like Bob Hope, his vault, of course, my God, all the movies he'd made, all the TV shows. We got the outtakes from those and we got the outtakes from Blake Edwards on uh, oh, the Pink Panther series, Peter Sellers, and those were hilarious and uh, quite a few others. So I would see Hope, you know, around town. From time to time, Harry actually took me to the house once, and uh, he actually signed a bunch of things for me, pictures and things. And I would see him again from time to time. I would I was at a Betty Ford a dinner for the Betty Ford Center. Lo and behold, I ran into Hope and President Ford and Mrs. Ford, and they introduced me. And he he said, "Oh, I, you know, I, I remember Captain Frederick. Yeah, you know, I know him. That was nice of him, but I don't know if that's true or not." 
In any case, later on, he did a bit in the TV show we made for the National Council on Alcoholism. So he did a bit there for us at NBC. And we also got Ronald Reagan, some people he knew, or was a people in the White House that he had appointed that uh, got him to agree to do a, a promo for the council. And that was a good thing. So anyway, there was a big golf tournament in Vegas where I got to meet Forrest Tucker and Shecky Green ran the thing. And it was uh, quite a deal. And again, they had a formal entertainment dinner night at the Sands, I believe it was. Famous, famous Las Vegas casino. When Hope came on, he played the Thanks for the Memory. He came on with it, and they played it when he went off. We had an orchestra there, and he did a little stand-up, of course, and talked about it and how terrible drugs were for kids and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he finishes, and again, applause, applause, applause. I was sitting in a booth right at the exit, and I could see him off to my right. He's walking, and everybody else is looking at the stage because there was a very famous performer but I thought Hope was more interesting. And so as he approached me, I mimed applause, 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 patting my hands together, you know, putting my hands together silently. But, but as he went by me, he grabbed my arm and squeezed twice. It was that second squeeze that got me. I thought, this guy is his own best PR person. Um, I'm looking right now as I speak, I'm looking at a autograph one sheet of the pale face to me from Bob Hope and Jane Russell, who I also met later. I got Hope first, and then uh, Russell was also nice enough to sign it for me. And by the way, The Pale Face is one of the funniest movies I ever saw in my life. It came out in 1948, which is a perfect time for me, 10 years old. I saw Hope 2 overseas. I had forgotten that. He put on a USO show. I was in Taipei, Taiwan. He did a USO show. I've forgotten who all the people were, but his regulars, Jerry Colonna and Les Brown and his band of renown, he always had Miss USA or Miss Universe or Miss America. You know, he's playing to a military audience at which he excelled. And he'd also say, oh, see what you're fighting for? Well, like a touch of home. I mean, um, I was on that island for two years, far away from home. It was the first place I went after I graduated from college and left, uh, you know, my hometown. Hope just brought America to you. I remember listening as a kid, listening to his radio show and going to his movies. Some of those movies were fabulous. The road, the road picture was Hope and Crosby, my favorite blonde, my favorite brunette, my favorite spy, the pale face, on and on and on. They were really, really staples. You know, he was his, and radio, he, he did everything, radio, television, movies. And he was always running around making personal appearances all over the place and always flying to meet some uh, Christmas for, for the uh, troops all over the world. Wherever they were, he'd go there. You said that when you took him to the airport, he was not funny, and he wanted to talk about serious things. You know, he was funny on stage, and, and he was, you know, in interacting, I'd see him with other performers. I mean, he would joke and things like that. But he could be a serious person, too, and, and he was going to a military base or wherever we were taking him, which was a serious destination. He could be serious. He didn't tell a joke, and the entire time I was around him, at least as a chauffeur. There wasn't much conversation anyway. You waited until they said something, and 
well, like I say, the Vietnam War was on, and he had some con- very serious concerns about the troops and how are they doing, and da 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 da. And uh, I would try to answer as best I could. He didn't uh, say anything particularly significant or anything, but they were. Uh, his tone was serious. He's funny all the time for money or for uh, you know for applause or whatever else. It's okay. You want to be regarded as a serious person too. And he was a confidant after all to president. You know. What am I to say that being serious is a bad thing? A true American hero. The veterans will never forget him, I tell you. Even to this day, uh, it's amazing. He's, he's an American hero, no question about it. Bob Hope, I, I don't know, will never be forgotten by anyone who saw him or was around him or whatever. He was, a, he was amazing. In your book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, you relate many adventures with a who's who of Hollywood. Hollywood in its heyday, including William Shatner, Burt Lancaster, Charlton Heston, Barbara Eden, Dick Van Dyke and Carol Burnett, Ernest Borgnine, and many other Hollywood heroes and sports celebrities as well. But what I'd like to know, John, is about your early days in Hollywood and the attraction that Tinseltown held for you. First of all, I was born between the two most cataclysmic, horrible events of the 20th century, the Great Depression and World War II. Well, I don't remember much about the Great Depression. Uh, Let's face it, I was from three to four years old when it ended in 1941, and the war is what ended it because everyone got employed all of a sudden. But I remember um, the first house we lived in, or it wasn't even a house, it had been a garage. It wasn't all that roomy, and we had a very old car. I remember that. Before that, we were in an apartment above a tavern called the Dutch Mill. Come World War II, in a way, it was like COVID-19. So was the Depression. I mean, there was a cloud over the country. A great tragedy was occurring. People were dying. Of course, I was so young, I wasn't really affected by it. But in fact, because of gas rationing, because of rationing on certain other things, you didn't, there wasn't ice cream to be eaten, really. There was, you couldn't really drive anywhere or go anywhere. So what do kids do? Well, we played outside. Uh, We didn't have, uh, we had some games, you know, mostly it was hide and seek and other things outside, softball, baseball, whatever kids would do. There were just three escapes. One was comic books. And the other was radio. And radio was amazing. Radio actually helped me as, a, as someone who created movies later. I was able, through that imaginative medium of radio, I was able, intuitively able to visualize a scene and then be able to put it into words and, and, a, and actions and so forth. Because you had to visualize in radio. It was a great imaginative theater of the mind. And the writers were a special breed. They had to be able to write for radio. You couldn't show it. You had to let people do the visualizing themselves. But what happened, too, with comic books and with radio is that these entities ended up being in the movies. And the movies were all over the place. Every studio made 50 movies a year. And you got to get your ideas from somewhere. And how it all got started, you know, there were silent movies, and those were just little bitty, little bitty movies, and then they became bigger and bigger and bigger. But they were mostly thought up. There weren't any, I mean, there was no dialogue. So 
they made up the comedies and they made I don't know how many. And later, all that you had as far as uh, a writer goes was the titles. And so if you, you got a credit for being a title writer, nobody cared about writers. And then all of a sudden, sound came along. Well, when sound came along, two things happened. A lot of very exotic-looking foreign pola negre, or they couldn't speak English very well. So, whoop, no career. And Hollywood went to Broadway and found people like George Arliss and John Barrymore, people who could speak. And dialogue suddenly became important. Well, all of a sudden, there were writers. Hollywood grabbed famous writers, Rex Beach, and writers of the time, and grabbed them for Hollywood. And they anything they could get their hands on, and the works of these people then became movies also. And there was a European writer called Maurice Matterlink. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. But anyway, he wrote a movie called The Bluebird. The Bluebird became a big hit with Shirley Temple. And so everybody wanted to get the rights to some other books that he had written. So Sam Goldwyn took an option on a book called The Bee. It was never made into a movie because it was actually told from the point of view of the bee, which, uh, having discovered this, Goldwyn, who was famous for his temperament, temper outbursts, said, we're not going to make a movie about acting, so that, that was that. It's interesting that comic books turned into movies, radio shows turned into movies, The Shadow, Inner Sanctum, they were all movies. There were movies about comic book heroes like Captain Marvel and The Shadow, and it was all one great big potpourri for me. And I love comic books. I love radio. And I love funny radio. Jack Benny, Fred Allen, Bob Hope, all those people, of course, ended up in the movies. Some of the movies weren't very good. And a lot of those writers I was talking about ended up having series like Charlie Chan was a my God, they must have made 20 Charlie Chan movies and The Saint and The Falcon. It's been books, and now, boop, there are movies. And again, you make 50 movies a year, you're going to make some very good ones. And in those days, they had the double feature. So the tail end, the second feature would be a Charlie Chan or a Boston Blackie or a, a Western uh, with Gene Autry or Hopalong Cassidy or Roy Rogers or John Wayne or whatever. Maybe not as much money spent on those second features. Even to this day, when I see one of those Boston Blackies or the Falcon or the Saint on TCM, I'll go out of my way uh, to tape it and look at it. And I still enjoy them. To this day, I, I love black and white movies, and I love those old movies. And so that's how I got interested in Hollywood. The idea that I would someday get to Hollywood uh, was just beyond me. Uh, getting to Hollywood, well, it, it entailed a lot of sheer luck and happenstance, and and the na I ended up. I didn't go to Hollywood to become discovered. I went to Hollywood because the Navy sent me there, and I was to be a movie and television officer in the Hollywood uh, Information Office. And it's good, really, that there is an office that studios and networks can request participation or assistance if they're making a project that has to do with the Navy, and sometimes even when there isn't, because the Navy has some wonderful locations that are available in the area of Los Angeles, 
from Long Beach uh, to Point Magoo, they could also be used and, and send a, a message, uh, again, a positive message about what the Navy's about and so forth. And so, first of all, you're in Hollywood. I'm in Hollywood. I can't believe I'm in Hollywood. And what do I see? Well, in my first weeks, I remember seeing Burt Lancaster in a white Cadillac driving down Hollywood Boulevard. I saw Charles Bronson in a T-shirt in a department store. I went to uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel, and there in the lobby were, at the same time on the same day, Orson Welles, who was the great genius kind of figure, Citizen Kane and all the rest, and Ed Cookie Burns, of all people, who was a teen idol getting 10,000 letters a week, I understand, a lot more than Orson Welles was getting, but it was kind of a story of Hollywood all in one, one day. I mean, here's Orson Welles and here's Cookie Burns. I would learn about, not just about the movies as I became a technical advisor. I remember we went to Port Wainimi, the CB base. There was a, a show I was assigned to, and it was the FBI. Ephraim Zimbalist was in it. Uh, it wasn't in this episode, but they were filming on location at Port Wainimi in a storage area where tanks and other military vehicles were sent, getting ready to be sent to Vietnam. It was 69, middle of 69. So I was there to make sure everything you know, went as planned. As they had said, they had to supply the script and we had to approve it and so forth. And there was this scene Don Grady was a young actor, and he had been, of course, one of Fred McMurray's sons in My Three Sons. So he's trying to get some extra stuff out of the scene he was playing. I don't know what he had to do with being around tanks, but it wasn't good, and the FBI was on it. Anyway, so he began to do chin-ups off a gun barrel off one of the tanks, and it's quite, uh, quite something. And so he probably did it 10 times, maybe 15 times. Uh, of course, the camera wasn't rolling at the time, and by the time that they were around and setting up for the shots, he was no longer able to do chin-ups. <laughs> so he had to do the scene kind of leaning against the tank. <laughs> he was pretty tired from all those chin-ups. And so that was it. But that wasn't what caught my attention. When you first watch a movie and you're a kid, or even when you grow up and not by this time I'm 30 years old, what do you see? The stars? You don't see the writers. You don't see the producers. You don't see the executives. You don't see what the studio looks like. What you're seeing is actors. And of course, you think about actors and, you know, that's, you have your people you like or people you really like or people maybe aren't, aren't so interesting to you. But actors, actors, actors. But I'm watching a movie being made, and not only the camera and, and the various tracking shots, how the dolly shots are set up, and how various scenes actually go together. There's a, so many people behind the scenes, the makeup people, the lady who's checking the, the script between takes to make sure that you know everything starts where it stopped, it's got to start again, and oh yes, you didn't have your arm over here, you had it over there. You know, every minute detail, there's someone the makeup people, the sound people, the cameraman, the director of photography, the director, they all play a part. And in this particular episode of the FBI, there was one sequence where someone was running a camera set for a long shot. Someone was running toward the camera and there was a great explosion and boom, it went up and you could see smoke. And, and I could hear the director saying, fire on the right. And a little tongue of flame would come from there. Smoke on the left, 
a big puff of smoke would come from the left. Anyway, or the right or whatever it was, it was like, oh my God, it's magic. And what's, what really was interesting was, of course, the man appeared to be in the middle of this colossal explosion. This explosion was caused by an electric charge on five gallons of gasoline and six inches of cork. It appeared to be the world coming to an end. And the person, I don't even know his name to this day, the person who did this, who created this, was what's called the special effects man. And his story was fabulous. He, he told it to me while we were between takes and between, you know, all this thing with the explosion he was working on. He showed me he had created this device that could belch fire and smoke from one side or the other, depending what the director wanted. And that, like I say, that five inches of gas with an electric charge made that cork look like the whole of the area around it was being blown up. And, of course, the actor was safely 15 feet behind where all that was happening. It looked like he was in the middle of the, of the explosion, but he was not. And so the, the story then of this guy was that he got into the business, and this is true, you know, Hollywood nepotism runs amok. When I got there, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any relatives. That's how to do it. I had a neighbor who was a director, and his brother was a famous writer, and his father had been a producer. The writer was exceptionally good. My neighbor, I'm not quite that certain, because a friend of mine who was a writer said that he was a hack, and I can't speak for that, but he had directed some very famous features. Would he have gotten those jobs? Would his brother have gotten those jobs if his father hadn't been a famous producer? Or did you know someone in the union? Or did you know someone at the studio? That's how jobs are gotten. Well, this guy, getting back to him, the special effects man on FBI, he was actually in some little town in Northern California in 1935. And they were going to make a movie there called Annie Oakley. And Annie Oakley was played by Barbara Stanwyck, probably one of the one or two most popular actresses among her fellow performers, you know, cast and crew. Everybody loved Barbara Stanley. She was just great. Scene would have shown her uh, as Annie Oakley shooting, uh, as she rode her orchestra around the ring, she's going to shoot balls that are uh, strategically placed. She's going to shoot those balls with her rifle. She was probably in some of the close-ups, but uh, the stunt woman, of course, probably was doing most of the riding. She didn't notice, of course, it wasn't Barbara Stanley because she was dressed like her, looked like her, and so forth. But they had been all over town, the movie company, trying to find someone who was the best shot in town. And this man was the he was a butcher at Safeway. So he was the guy. He was to hide in a barrel and with his shotgun outside of camera range. Every time she pointed at a, at a ball or she rode by, he'd pop it with the shotgun. And he was a crack shot, and sure enough. The sequence worked perfectly, and he, he he did his job. So he was told to come back the next day, and he was given an envelope. So he went home. He'd taken the day off from Safeway. He went home, and he sat with his wife at the kitchen table and opened the envelope. And it was a check for $60, which happened to be his weekly uh, salary at Safeway. So this, by now... I mean, uh, it was dark. They couldn't go over and double check with the with the people. But he was going to take the check back because he knew it was a mistake. They were paying him too much money. 
And so he was going to tell them that this has to be corrected and so forth. So the next morning, bright and early, he goes over and he sees whoever the guy is who's signing the checks and so forth. And he says, you pay me too much. And the guy looks at the check, 60 bucks. And so he gets out a, a book, a, a very, <laughs> very well used large book and thumbs through it and finds evidently the price structure for shooting glass balls out of a barrel with a shotgun. And the guy says, 60 bucks, that's all you get. And he went home and told his wife what had happened. The picture was in town for many more weeks, and uh, he made friends with the special effects guy who coordinated all that kind of thing. And the man was nice enough to tell him, well, this is how you do this, and this is how you do it. This man had a talent for it. When the company went back to Hollywood, this man wrote that special effects coordinator who, who got him an audition for doing that kind of thing in Hollywood. He kept his house, and later he bought a ranch in Northern California, and he would go back there between pictures. But he ended up being the, uh, an explosives and dynamite expert and did special effects on things. This, you know, we're talking, this is in 1971, I guess. So from 1935 on, he forgot Safeway and the butcher shop and ended up doing these things, but living back in that Northern California setting that he loved, the ranch that he really liked. It so happened that this FBI episode was to be his very last. And one of the unforgettable characters that you meet, the boom man, the sound man, the makeup girl, the, the script girl, and all these unforgettable characters that you meet in the making of a movie. And whose names you see in the credits at the end of the movie, and it just goes by in a nanosecond. Yeah, they do get their credits now, uh, but credits ever since Walt Disney, you see Walt Disney Presents, or whatever it was, and the credits in the Walt Disney movies are so numerous and are shown so fast that you really don't get, you know, yes, you get your name up there, but the television shows, <laughs> watch them. They go by so fast, and there's so many different thises and that that didn't used to be, like seven or eight different kinds of producers, and all these other, other things go by so fast. You get your name up, but nobody can read it, and nobody wants to anyway. Who's watching the credits? The only people watching credits are the people who are involved in the picture or their relatives. Yeah, they get their name there, but in those days, I don't think they even got a credit. The only people in, in 1935 getting credits were the actors, the director, the music people, the, just the very basic people. They never had a, a name for special effects coordinators, and he would never have gotten a credit. Not in those days. He probably started getting credits later on, but certainly not in 1935. Credits were few and far between. And there was one producer and maybe an assistant producer. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing more about your adventures in Hollywood, the Hollywood of old, and hearing some more great stories from your book. Now, that wraps up this edition of Starcatcher, the podcast, True Stories from Hollywood's Golden Age, as told by the man who was there when they said it, John Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of the top-selling book, by the same name, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. It's available right now at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. Now, we certainly hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, and if you did, there's something you can do for us. Number one, subscribe to our podcast. 
Number two, leave a short review. And number three, by all means, share this with your friends. In the next edition of Starcatcher the Podcast, author John Frederick will reminisce about his encounters with Robert Young, Jason Robards, and the lovable Carol Burnett. Until next time, I'm Neil Scott. Hooray for Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs>